Have you ever asked yourself why? Why do I exist? Why is Jesus the only way? Have you ever wondered why you should have community? Why you should be in a small group? Why do I give? Why would I be generous? Why should I serve? And why would I share my faith? Have you ever asked yourself, why should I love my neighbor? That's a hard one. And why would I live a missional life? Why do bad things happen to good people? We all have so many questions. Let's take the time to dive into what scripture has to say. Well, good morning, guys. How are we? Good to see y'all. Dad wanted to to let you guys know that after eight years of being with you guys, he finally trusted me enough to leave on a Sunday and leave us alone together. Uh, He and mom are at the beach for a couple days uh, celebrating mom's birthday. And so uh, know that they love you guys. Uh, This morning, we're going to be in two passages. I'd ask you guys to go ahead and thumb there so we can can be uh, in James chapter 2 and in Matthew 28 this morning. And as you guys are turning there... Uh, I want to draw some attention back and look back at the life this morning uh, as we we start out uh, of a name that we should all know, and that is Mother Mary uh, Teresa. Uh, Mother Teresa is well known, a matriarch of the faith, so to speak. Uh, And Mother Teresa, her story kind of goes that at the age of 12, uh, she said is when she first felt a real call on her life to enter into ministry. A couple short years later, at the age of 18, she would eventually uh, leave her home and she would move to Ireland where she began uh, to study with the nuns and to study in the sisterhood. At age 27, after nine years of studying, she would eventually take her uh, vow and move to India to become uh, an official nun in the Catholic faith. It says for many years she served the sisterhood uh, in the convent there. She eventually uh, moved on to be a teacher at the Catholic high school uh, it says, but she, she said that she, she couldn't help but feel like there was this deeper stirring uh, within her to move past the convent, to move past just the comfort of the sisterhood and the teaching at the school. She says that she most specifically felt drawn uh, to the town of Kolkata. Uh, this was a town outside of where she served that had been ravaged and devastated by a famine in previous years. And it left uh, a people group that were incredibly impoverished and that they were hungry and starving uh, and dying regularly. Some of the poorest of the poor people uh, cast out kind of to the margins of society. Uh, and her heart began to be drawn deeply for these people. She says that at age 36, uh, she felt what she refers to as a call within a call. She said, at age 12, I knew that I had been called into ministry. Uh, That moved me into my 20s, actually becoming a nun and entering into the ministry. But at age 36, she said, man, something started stirring inside of me. That that was this deeper call to be even more involved in the things of God and more involved in the ministry than just simply being a sister and being associated uh, with the faith. And she says, in this call within a call, she she felt drawn to not just have a heart and go out and minister to these people in Calcutta, but actually to leave the comforts of the convent, leave the comforts of her job, leave the comforts uh, of a common and a consistent meal, and actually move out into the people group of Calcutta. So she went back to her supervisors and she told them, hey, this is what I feel like God is laying on my heart and drawing me to. It's to leave all the comfort it's to leave all the normalcy, it's to leave all the consistency and deeply be ingrained in a people group that are suffering and need somebody to love them. 
And she says that she eventually grabbed the support of her supervisors and her superiors and they blessed her and sent her out. And I love Mother Teresa. She says, I went out and I had no one to help me. I had no formal teaching and how to do what I felt God was calling me to do. I had no aid. I had no donors. I had no support. Something I think that each one of us, if given that same uh, set of circumstances, uh, would yield us probably to make no steps of faith. But Mother Teresa says, I know this is what God is leading me to do. And though there's no support, there's no training, there's no teaching, I don't know how to do what I know God's calling me to do. She says she stepped out in faith and in humility and in trusting the call that God placed on her life. She said, man, God began to show up and God began to move. She said that the work was incredibly hard. She said moving into a people group, moving into poverty, that the work was tiring and it was hard. And she said often the tempter would come and begin to whisper in her ear and say, Teresa, you are just one, one word away from going back to a life of comfort. You're just one word away from being able to enter back in to ease. You're one word away and you can move back to the convent. You've got a job. You've got steady meals. You're one word away from entering back in to comfort. And she said, in these times when the tempter would come, she said her response was this, and I quote, she said, free choice, my God, and out of love for you, I desire to remain and to do what will be holy in my regard. And by the grace of God, the ministry began to grow more and more. People began to get engaged. People would come and help serve. Donations began to come, and she was able to create a society amongst these poor people where uh, it was said that they would accompany them to death while also giving them the, the dignity of humanity along the way. She entered in not into a people group that were flourishing with great opportunities of growth and success, but she entered into a people group from a call on her life to say, I want you to go to a people that are dying. I want you to go to a group of people that have been uh, pushed again to the margins of society, and these are the people I want you to accompany to death while giving them dignity and their humanity along the way. In 1952, Mother Teresa would go on to open up a home specifically for those suffering from leprosy. And just like in Calcutta, this people group that had been pushed away and ostracized, they began to say, man, we want to create a community where we can provide jobs for these people. They can begin to find some purpose in their day to day. And as this, this disease is slowly killing them, and as uh, most of society wants nothing to do with them, we want to give them dignity, self-worth, teach them the love of God, give them the ability to work purpose thrives in this. As Mother Teresa would eventually receive the Nobel Peace Prize, in her, in her uh, speech in, in the receiving of the award, she says in part, she said, for holiness is not a luxury of the few, but it is a simple duty for each one of us. And through this love, we can become holy to this love for one another. I love that. For holiness is not a luxury of the few, but it is a simple duty for each one of us. Today, Mother Teresa's uh, missionaries of charity, they're active in 133 countries across the world. There's over 5,000 sisters that serve in this mission. And generations after Mother Teresa's passing, they continue to live into the mission that Mother Teresa had. The calling to the poor, to the sick, and to the lonely. And they do so without fear and without pride, fully submitting in humility to the call to give dignity to humanity and serve them. This morning, as we continue in our series, why, we're going to ask the question, why are we called to live a life on mission? 
Why are we called to live missionally in our faith? And I think before we really look at the why, we're going to ask three questions this morning. Number one, we're going to look at what is uh, a missional life. Number two, we'll look at why do we live a missional life. And finally, we'll talk some practicality into how we are to live this missional life. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for a chance to gather. Thank you for um, just the ability to come and worship. We thank you that we have a Bible and that we have scriptures that we can read and we can open and that you speak to us through. And so, Lord, I submit to what you want to say to your people. God, I pray that you will open up every heart in this space that we will learn and we will grow and we will leave change. In Jesus' name, amen. Question number one, why do we live a missional life? James chapter 2. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we should have it up on the screen. James will say this. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith, well, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well, for even the demons believe, and they shudder. In other words, James is saying, hey, even demons believe in who God is, and it has uh, no saving faith or no saving salvation for them. He continues on, he says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified, underline justified. A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, let me say this. We may read that and we may get hung up a little bit on, well, I thought you can't earn your way into heaven. This Catholic kind of mentality of I've got to say a repetition of prayers and I've got to earn my way. That's not what James is saying. James is very, uh, very understanding as along with the rest of the scriptures that you are saved. Your salvation is found by a belief and a faith and a confession in the finished work of Jesus Christ. What James is adding to here is saying that though you have faith and though you say that you believe and have a faith in Jesus. For therefore the demons also believe that God is who he says he is and they shudder in fear and they don't have a faith of salvation. So he says, yes, you have a salvation. You are redeemed by Jesus by the belief and the confession of the finished work. He says, but if that does not move you to action in your life, it is a dead and an inactive faith. An analogy I would say would be like this. That, that if, you, uh, if, if you say and you go to, to get married and you say your marriage vows and you sign your marriage contract and submit that, you are technically married. But, but, but you show and you prove the love in your marriage by the outflow of actions that follows that day. 
right? So when, when James says, hey, you are justified in your faith through works. The word justified there means to declare or pronounce. So if you're taking notes this morning, I'd say it this way, that we declare and pronounce our faith by the actions that follow the belief in our heart and the words in our mouth. So when you get married and you stand at the altar and you say, this is what I vow to my spouse. If those vows are not followed up by a life of sacrifice, a life of provision, a life of serving one another, a life of actively loving and pursuing, you will find yourself in a dead marriage. That for a marriage to be thriving, for there to be life within the covenant, there has to be action followed by the words of my mouth. Uh, another great illustration of this is there was a, uh, a kid at the high school that I serve at. And during football practice, whenever it got time uh, for one-on-one drills where these kids would kind of hit each other and, and they would do some uh, offensive line drills, like clockwork, this kid would have to go to the bathroom. I mean, he had it timed down to a T. When he knew it was time to hit, kid had to go to the bathroom. they say, hey, where's so-and-so? Uh, dude's in the bathroom. Why? Man, he did not have any care in the world to get in the game and to get involved and to get bruised. Now, that said, if we were to have gone on and won a state championship that year, you know what this kid would have received? He would have received a ring, right? He would have gotten an award. Now, we would ask the question, was he justified in receiving that award? No, because his actions did not result in such a way that justified receiving an award at the end of the season. And very much likewise, guys, I would say that there are going to be many people that stand in heaven one day that get there simply because they were on the team, not because they got in the game or got involved whatsoever. I believe there are going to be many people that stand before God one day, and yes, they had a faith in Jesus, they confessed him, they, 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 they came and they got baptized, and then they ended it right there. They sat in a chair and they said, but I've got a faith in Jesus, and I hope you do, and I believe that there will be some that stand in heaven one day that are there solely because they got on the team, but I know for a fact that our Savior died for a lot more than for me to sit in a chair once a week and confess that I've got a faith, but yet be moved to action in no way. I believe that the call for us, James will say, is you are justified in the words of your mouth and the belief in your heart when you are moved to action. Hebrews chapter 11, we're not going to read it right now, but the, the homework for you guys will be, man, go read Hebrews chapter 11. It's known as the hall of faith. We read uh, patriarch after patriarch, matriarchs that are all uh, talked about here in Hebrews chapter 11. All these people that are renowned for their faith, in every single one of them, their faith is recognized by an outpour of action that followed the claim and the belief in their heart. Every single one. Read Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham. It's about Moses. It'll talk about, we read Rahab here, the prostitute. Like, there's over and over scripture where it talks about man, men and women of faith. They didn't just believe in their heart, but they believed in the person and in the character of who God was. And therefore, they were moved to obedience. They were moved to action. Time and time again, you are justified. You pronounce your faith. You declare your faith to the world when that which you believe and that which you say manifests into action. So I'd say this. A missional life is when the words of your mouth and the belief in your heart in Jesus begin to manifest into servanthood action. We're justified. Why do we live a missional life? It is when the words that you speak, the belief in the person of Jesus, then moves you to action. 
begins to manifest. Things begin to be seen in your life as a result. Now, raise your hand if you're a parent in the room. How many parents do we have raised kids, right? Okay. How often when you ask your child uh, to do something, their response is, why? Right? Hey, buddy, it's time to pick up the toy. It's time for bed. Why? Hey, man, it's dinner time. I need you to go get your cup. Why? Hey, bro, you've been in that underwear for three days. I need you to change your underwear. Why? Right? And often the response as a parent to this question of why can often be because I said so. Right? Now, it may be followed up with an explanation afterwards of here's why. But often when a kid is told to do something, we say, why? The answer for us as a parent is because I am your authority because I know what's best and because I said so. So number two. Why do we live a missional life? I'll say it plain and clear like this. Because it's what Jesus told us to do. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. And it says, when Jesus came and he said to them all, all authority on heaven or in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is looking at the end of his life after his death on the cross and the resurrection. He's standing with his disciples as he's about to ascend. And he looks at him and he says, hey, it's your time to go now. He says, hey, you've been following me for three and a half years. You've learned. I've taught you. We've done life together. It is time for me to go back to the Father. All authority and power has been given to me. I am now commissioning you and sending you out, telling you, go. But Jesus, how, what are we to do? <laughs> how, how do we go? What, is the, what, what are the actions that we're supposed to do? Man, Jesus gives them three real simple things. He says, number one, go make disciples. In other words, he's saying, hey, man, just go do life with people. Hey, Andrew, what did I do to you when when I called you to follow me? Matthew, what was my response when I said, hey, come follow me? Man, we went and had a meal together. I took you with me. We traveled together. We sat around late at night around candlelight and talked about the things that we'd experienced that day. Then we discussed life. We discussed our troubles. We were honest. We were open. I shared my life with you. Matt Chandler will say that discipleship is the idea that all of my life, or I'm sharing all of my life for all of life. Meaning that if Drew and I are discipling each other, man, all of my life is yours for all of my life. He says, man, I gave you all that I had. Now go do the same thing with somebody else. Man, go walk with people. Open up your life to somebody else. Let them see the fruit of what I've done in and through you and let it be an example of of the opportunity for a change. Like, man, go disciple people. Bring them in. Number two, he says, man, go baptize them. Baptism is one of the first steps of obedience that we follow after saying yes to Jesus. Hey, you're going to put a faith And Jesus, you've been discipling somebody, you've been walking with them. They say yes to Jesus, man, help teach them and point them how to move to action through baptism. The third thing he says is, man, teach them all that I've commanded you. All the things that we read in here, all the things of, of the teachings of Jesus and the parables of Jesus and the example we saw him set. Man, go teach this now. You don't know what to do? Man, it's because you don't maybe get in the word and open this thing up to know what I did. Right? They got to see it firsthand. We don't see what Jesus did firsthand, but dang, man, this book's full of all the things Jesus did. 
right? You want to know what to teach? You want to know what Jesus commanded us? Man, you got to get your butt up in the morning and get in the word. God, man, go teach them what I've commanded you to do. Jesus' sacrifice, I've said this already, but Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is so much more than for you to come in here and to sit for an hour and say, I've got a faith in Jesus. James will say, no, if you've got a faith in Jesus, it'll move you outside the doors to be active. When the, the early church which they considered themselves followers of the way. But when they started being uh, considered the church, it was the Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia was the term for an assembly or a gathering. It would be used like a political party. If there were decisions to be made or votes to be had, they would come ecclesia together, they would discuss, they would converse, and they would uh, choose on how they kind of want to move going forward. And then they left that gathering and implemented that which they had talked about. It said when Constantine in the early or the mid 300 ADs uh, made Christianity legal in the Roman Empire, that this German word crept into the ecclesia called Kirche. Now, Kirche is the German word for a physical building that they began to call church. And somewhere along the lines, when a Kirche became introduced and Christianity became legalized and it became a little bit easier. And it became a little bit more comfortable. People began to come into a gathering and it became a little bit more like a building, a little less like discussion and a lot less like moving from that place of implementation. And we have seen in the evangelical world and Christianity here in America that we will consider church a kirche. We have somewhere lost the call of the ecclesia to say this is a time where we gather together to worship. If you look at the book, uh, the book of Acts in chapter 2 and chapter 4, it says, man, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Man, they broke bread together. They had communion. They shared meals together. They worshiped. They pooled their resources together for any and all that had need. Man, we see Barnabas goes out, sells a piece of property, makes a bunch of money on the selling of the property, brings all of it to the apostles and says, man, I want to invest this into the, th into the kingdom of God. The ecclesia, they gathered they pooled resources, and then they moved to action. And my concern is, and the realization for us is, church has become a kirche. There is no reason why the kirche should not burn, be able to burn down to the ground today, and the ecclesia still gather next week. But the danger is that if the kirche burns down today, next week, we're probably going to stay at home. If the kerche burns to the ground, then we're just going to look for another one. Disregarding the fact that God says, no, this is the ecclesia of Loganville. You guys need to be gathering every single week, no matter what building you're in. If church is about a building, then I'm willing to bet that there's a lot of people that sit inside the kerche whose faith is dead. And man, you're just hoping to get in because you're on the team. James says, no, you're justified in your faith when that faith moves you into action and you gather and worship together and then you get your butts out into your daily life and do something about it. Man, go disciple, baptize them, teach them what I've commanded you to do. This is what it looks like to live a life on mission. Why? Because I said so. <laughs> because Jesus says that's what I told you to do. Now, like a good parent who will give an explanation and why you're telling them. So Jesus says, this is what you're to do, and this is how you're to go and do it. Now, let's talk practicality here. I, I believe that there's 
there's a lot of, of things we could put a whiteboard up here and we could write down lists of like, well, what do we actually do and how do we actually go live a missional life? I want to give you four things uh, that I think a lot of other topics could kind of fall under here. But four main things I want to touch on this morning. Number one, Paul will write in Colossians 4, chapter 2, he'll say, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. First thing to living a missional life is this, that we must be people of prayer. First thing, how do we live a life on mission? You've got to be people of prayer. Pastor Eric Simmons, in an article he writes about missional living, he says this. He said, God wants us to understand that our communion with him through prayer is the key to mission work. In other words, effective evangelism begins with diligent, watchful prayer. God wants us to talk to him before we go out in the world and talk about him. If you pray for opportunities, they will happen. There's a guy that my wife and I work out with. Uh, My wife and I have been doing uh, CrossFit together for years. Incredible grounds for community. There's a guy that we got to know kind of passively taking some classes uh, together. We had, you know... Passively had a, a few conversations here or there. Uh, we had, I'd asked him one day after a class, I was like, man, what, you know, do you have any kind of faith? What's that look like for you? And he said, well, I grew up going to church, high school, college, was leading Bible studies, doing the church thing. He said, then I got to a place in college to where I, I, just, I just didn't really believe what it was I was doing anyway, uh, doing in uh, the church. And so in essence, I just walked away. I just didn't, just stopped believing. And, and so Grace and I began uh, just to have a heart for this guy. And we knew that he would post on social media and some stuff. He had a son who's about a year and a half year old and uh, was talking about how his son was sick all the time, ear infections, sinus infections, just always kind of getting sick. And so Grace and I, very intentionally, like, man, we're just going to start praying for this dude's kid. And when we got opportunities to see him, we're just going to ask, man, how's your, how's your boy doing? Hey, man, we've been praying for your son. How's your, how's your son feeling? And this went on for, for many weeks. Just kind of like hoping, hey, maybe this will give kind of some way, some ground of connection. We don't know, but I'm, I actually said I'm praying for your son and did it, right? So that's a, that's a whole other sermon. But we, uh, we say we're going we're gonna to pray, and then we actually did it. We followed back up, said, hey, man, I've been praying for your kid. How is he? A little bit of relationship began to grow, began to soften a little bit, began to open up some opportunities. One morning I was driving to the gym and just praying, man, if something was coming up and just praying, like as Jesus says, hey, man, here's how to pray. Part of the Lord's prayer is your kingdom come and your will be done. So my prayer so many mornings is like, Lord, help align my life with what you're doing. Man, I just want to partner with your kingdom. Will you give me eyes to see? Will you give me a heart to where I can actually begin to partner in what you're doing? So that was my prayer. The guy happened to be there that morning and we got done working out and the Holy Spirit clearly told me, he said, man, I want you to go ask him to pray with him for his son. And like all good Christians do, we think, I don't know if that was from God, man. <laughs> like, right, we're going to, yeah, we'll sit on it. And Holy Spirit kept convicted. No, ask him to pray with him for his son. Ask him to pray with him for his son. So, of course, uh, we wait to the last minute. And the guy starts to leave, and I walk out after him. And I said, hey, man, can I just pray with you for your boy? I know he's been sick, man. I just want to see if I could pray with you. And he stops, and he says, you know, since, since I know you, you pray, and you come up and tell me you pray, uh, a lot. He goes, I really need prayer. He said, my second marriage just out of nowhere ended last week in divorce. And he goes, I don't know what happened. He said, this summer we were great. I thought we were in a phenomenal place. Things were, were going really well. And she just she said she's out. She didn't love anymore. And she's done. And now I'm a single dad. I'm second failed marriage. Like, I don't really know what to do. So we stood outside the gym. We prayed for him that morning. And about a week later, we had breakfast for the first time. Man, tell me a little bit more about your story. Just kind of want to hear, hear about your life. Let me share a little bit about me. 
Continue to work out together. Continue to see him at the gym. Continue to love on him. Man, that'd be great, man. You and your boys should come have dinner with us. You got a young kid. I got two young kids. We come, come hang out at the house, man. Let us love on you a little bit more. A couple weeks after that, spending another breakfast together, continuing to pray for this guy, continuing to ask God, man, that he would just move in a powerful way, that he would uh, just, just kind of overflow this guy with his love. Dinner at his house. Kids are starting to play, get to know each other. Relationship has grown. And I don't fully know what the Lord is going to do in this guy's life. But I know, dang it, man, I'm going to do my best to pray this dude down. And in submitting to prayer and starting each morning in a place of prayer, in a posture of prayer, man, God is beginning to open up doors. Back in June, the Lord really convicted me. Laying in bed one night, God began to speak to me and say, you don't fully trust in prayer. You rely way too much on man's abilities and their resources. Man, call, call super high conviction. Like you, you say, man, like you pray, you say you trust prayer. But it's like this passive thing where, where if it was an opportunity to either rely on prayer or to trust somebody's ability or resources, you put a little bit more stock in that. And God began to show me, I want you every morning to start your morning in your closet. I want you to come to this place. I want you to shut the door. I want you to start every day in prayer with me. And there's a lot of days since June, y'all, and that alarm goes off at 5.30. I just want to get up and go get a cup of coffee. But God's beginning to show me, and this is a, an example where he says, no, man, come and begin in steadfast prayer and in thankfulness, beginning every day saying, like, Lord, I've got to submit to you what your will is for my life. Man, there is a hurting world out there full of people who need you to intervene in their life. And I might miss it if I just begin my day in my own wisdom and my own strength. Paul said, man, continue steadfastly. We've got to be people of prayer. I am not smart enough nor wise enough to have the eyes and the mind of God to see people and where they really are and the way God sees them. I need to submit every day to be steadfast in prayer. God, there's another dude just been praying like, Lord, will you just till up the soil of his heart? God, man, like he, he, he confesses that he kind of knows you, but you can't see it. Like, Lord, it's like the seed's being sown and gets plucked pretty easy. I need you to till the, the soil of his heart. I need you to stir within him. I'll come back to him here in just a second. Second thing, though, I'd say this. You need to identify your people. You start out being steadfast in prayer. Then you move into a place saying, Lord, I need to identify your people. We see this with uh, we see this with Paul. God grabs a hold of Paul's heart. The first place Paul goes is back to the synagogue. Why? He's like, man, these are my people. I, I, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, Paul said. I've studied under the greatest teachers of the law in Israel. Man, this dude was legit when it came to theology, philosophy, being a, uh, a university professor-esque, so to speak. So when Paul gets saved, man, this dude goes back into the synagogues. He goes back to reason with the Pharisees. Because he's like, man, I get where you're at. I know why you believe what you believe. Now, I got to tell you, I can't help. I got to show you and tell you what I've learned in Jesus. And we see Paul, man, he goes back to his people. We see that he doesn't stay there. He eventually moves on to the Gentiles and moves out into a broader scope. But a great place to start. Why or how do you live a life on mission? Man, identify the people that you connect with. For my wife and I, again, we've been training and, and coaching CrossFit for many years now. I was sitting at a seminary, uh, a seminar back in September getting some recertifications, and we sat there at, at lunchtime. It was just kind of a break, sitting there kind of quiet by myself. And just God began to show me, man, like there's a bunch of 
people that enjoy working out, we're all covered in tattoos and we all measured and weighed our food and we're eating our own prepackaged lunch. But God showed me, he's like, man, these are your people. You like what you, you got the same interests. You can connect with them. You can relate to them. And let me tell you, that world of cross, I mean, it's a hurting place. There's a bunch of hurting people that feel like they are not welcomed inside of a kerche. And little do they know, man, like if we would be the ecclesia and move back out and be able to identify our people and go and meet them where they are, man, they would know church in a way that is what Jesus intended it to be, not what we've created it to be. You got to know, man, who are your people? Who do you identify with? Who can you relate to? Man, it's the recovering addicts, man. I get where you've been. Man, it's the it's homeschool moms, man, who are like, man, we want to teach our kids. We need a support group. It's the foster care community. Who are the people that God has uniquely gifted you to connect with? Identify that. Third thing. Didn't even know Dad talked about this last week until after I wrote this point, so you get it back to back. Number three is this. you got to surrender your wallet. How do you live a life on mission? You have got to give up your wallet. I love the saying that says, I can tell you who you worship based on your bank statement. I can tell you what you place priority on and who you worship based on the statement that that bank sends you every single month. What we have, as Dad talked about last week, is not ours. Yet we live life so close-fisted, clenching on to everything that we feel like is ours, that even if God wanted to give us something, we couldn't receive it because our hands are tightly closed. It said that the posture in which you give is the same posture in which you'd give to receive. We see this with Job. Man, Job had everything. Job was one of the wealthiest dudes around. Man, he had all the, the animals, the kids, the house. He had everything. Just like that, God says, man, I can give it and I can take it away. We see with Job, man, like what you have is not yours. With the utterance of words, God can say, I can allow what I've given you to also be taken away. What if we began to live with the mentality, truly believing that what I have is not mine? I love this picture of an exodus. God frees the Israelites from Egypt. They began to, to, to walk through the desert, and it says, man, God brought them to a place where there was no food and no water. And, man, these people started grumbling. They said, I wish we were just back in slavery. I wish we were back in bondage because at least there we sat around pots of meat. And they began to grumble and complain. And God, and as he's like, man, if you just would have asked. But even in your complaining, he says, tomorrow morning, Moses, tell the people tomorrow when they wake up, there's going to be this dew-like substance around the surface of the desert. And I want you to go out and I want you to start collecting it. But he says, those who collect a lot, they're going to have just enough. Those who don't collect that much, they're going to have more than enough. He says, but tell the people that if they gather more than they need for today, the next day it's going to be spoiled. So Moses and Aaron, they go and they tell the people and they go out and they start collecting this manna and they bake it. And it's like these sweet honey tasting flakes, these little waffle type things. And it says, but a lot of the people didn't trust God. They, they're like, man, we're in a place, we're hungry. We hadn't eaten in a couple days. So we see some people, they don't trust God's word not to collect enough for tomorrow, but just enough for what they need today. So some folks go out and, man, they just start hoarding it and collecting a bunch. It says the next morning they wake up and there was a stench among the camp of the Israelites. It says the manna had spoiled and there were maggots and there were worms and it began to rot and there was this putrid smell. And God was like, do you not trust that the words that I utter will come to fruition? 
And I would say this, guys, I think how many lives, how many kingdom opportunities are being spoiled and wasted because we hoard our resources and we do not trust that God's enough to provide for tomorrow. He told the Israelites, man, just trust me. Get what you need for today. It'll be there tomorrow. The Israelites said, nope, I, I, just, I just don't know. So I'm going to get a little bit just in case. And God said, I'm going to spoil and it's going to go to waste and it's going to leave a stink in your tent that you can't get rid of. I think there are many kingdom opportunities. There are many lives. There are many opportunities for people maybe to get to know the love of Jesus that are being wasted and spoiled because we live with our fists so closed and we just don't trust God to be enough for tomorrow. To live a life on mission, we have got to be willing to surrender your wallet. You gotta surrender your resources. You gotta trust that what you have has been given by God in the first place and if he wants you to have more, he'll give you more. But also man, if cans of tuna and white rice gotta show up on the back doorstep tomorrow, then God is still enough. Number four, last thing here would be this. How do we live a missional life? Open up your table. Super simple. Very practical. Jesus looks at Matthew and says, hey, man, come follow me. Matthew runs back and says, can I invite some of my friends over to the house? Will you come eat with us? Yes. Zacchaeus, man, I want to come hang with you today. Let's go have a meal at your house. We see time and time again, commentators will say, if you look at the book of Luke, it's either Jesus at a meal, going to a meal, or coming from a meal. There is something phenomenal about inviting somebody into your house to have a meal. There's something special. The guards are dropped. Relationships can begin to deepen solely by the fact of saying, man, I want, just come to my house, man. I want, to cook, I want to cook a meal for you. I want to sit around a table with you. I told you the guy we've been praying for, like, Lord, will you just till up the soil of his heart? Got to know the guy back in the fall. We began running together, working out together, running together, and just seeing, like, man, I, got, I know there's, there's a topical, but it's not, heart, it's not heart level yet. It's like, Lord, will you just till up his heart? His soil's hard, it's rocky, he can't fully receive the truth. Last week, gave him a book a couple weeks ago, or a couple months ago, I should say, and he finally read it, and he's like, man, I don't know what's going on, but something is convicting me. And I was like, I know what's going on, I've been praying for you every morning, right? And uh, he doesn't know that. And so I said, man, why don't you come to dinner, right? Like, bring some sweet potatoes, because we all got to ante up a little bit. But bring some sweet potatoes, we're going to have a meal together. Have a meal, lay the kids down for bed for the next two hours, man. He just begins to share, like, man, this is what, like, stuff is stirring up. Like, I, I don't know what to do. I know that, like, I'm unhappy. I'm convicted. Like, I don't really know what to process here, man. Got to do the Bible. We're sitting there for two hours. We're reading the scripture together. My wife and I, we're loving on him. We're sharing the truths of God. Say, man, at some point, you've got to choose which path you want to take. One of them's wide for a reason. The other one's narrow. Here's what it looks like to enter the narrow path. Man, two hours of unbelievable gospel conversation came. Why? Just invited him over to dinner. At about 7 o'clock when we were about to lay the kids down, I thought he's probably about to head out. And at least it was a short little touch. Holy Spirit had a whole different plan for the next couple hours. to say, man, we're going to talk and we're going to share our hearts. Days after text messages and continual conversation. He's in the book of Matthew now. He's reading it multiple times. He's texting me the things. He's learning why. Started steadfastly in prayer identified our people, we opened up the kitchen table. The kitchen table is an unbelievable way to invite people in, man. Hospitality. It's one of the most, uh, most revered 
uh, qualities of the Eastern people. They believe you step into my house, man, I got to give you something. I'm going to feed you. We're going to give you a cup of coffee. We're going to give you, give you a cup of tea. Man, hospitality goes a long way in the kingdom of God to, to drop guards, enter in relationally, to give opportunity. Nick, if you guys want to head up this way. Pastor Eric Simmons, again, wrote the article on missional living. He says this. He says, the primary mission field for most of us is not far away. It's in the routine of our daily lives. We don't just go to the gym, the coffee shop, the grocery store, the neighborhood barbecue. We don't just go to work or the classroom. Thinking missionally changes our perspective. It reminds us that God, the sovereign ruler of this world, sends us to each of these places. Some of you guys have got a heart for, for global missions. We've got a partner from, uh, a missional partner from India who's here this morning. He's going to share with you guys just the unbelievable things that are taking place in India. And for some, some people, man, they are called overseas. They're called to invest into that world. But for a lot of us, the mission field doesn't have to be miles and miles and oceans away. The mission field is in your daily life of where you go.